0: My name's Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at Friendship, and it's great to have all of you here this morning as we worship Jesus together. It is, as you just noticed... Life Group Sunday here, which means there is a table out there where we'd love to help people get into community that's running after Jesus together, where people can be praying for each other and caring for each other and digging into the word and encouraging each other. And so if you're interested, there's a table right outside the doors that you can connect with afterwards who will help you know where you can find a life group to be a part of. Uh, It's Life Group Sunday, and as you look around, there'll be a couple of life group leaders that you see who are wearing their life group shirts I flew in late last night from a family funeral in another state, hadn't tried my shirt on, and when I put it on this morning, it literally came down to here. So I was trying to think of what that would look like up here and what the camera might capture and how many of you would make fun of me for wearing a dress over the course of time. (laughs) And so I am not in my life group leader shirt today, but that doesn't change the fact that today is life group Sunday and we'd love to help you get into a life group we're in the middle of our fall sermon series, which is called Creation and the Cross. What are we looking at in Creation and the Cross? We're studying the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and specifically looking at it in light of the greatest event in human history Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And today we come to Genesis chapter 2. And so I would invite you to open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We looked at Genesis 2, 1 through 4 last week as a part of Genesis 1. We're going to be looking at the rest of Genesis 2 today. And as we move towards Genesis chapter 2, I want you to imagine a scene in a movie. A movie scene in which you are picturing things from an ultra-wide angle. Maybe you're even in outer space, the angle is so wide. And then all of a sudden, the camera begins to zoom in and it zooms and it zooms and it zooms and it zooms. And as it comes in tighter and tighter and tighter, you finally land on a single scene. Can you imagine that? From ultra wide shot down to a single scene. Because that's what happens between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 is the creation account from the ultra-wide angle. We see God bring everything into existence out of nothing. And he is ordering the entire universe. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we focus in on a tight little scene in which God is going to bring about humanity. And as we look at God bring about humanity in Genesis chapter 2, what we are going to see is God... Give and give and give to us some more. And we're going to see how that giving that God gives in the creation of people connects to the cross of Jesus Christ and his generosity to us through the cross. When we think of God's giving to us, the first thing we notice in Genesis chapter 2 is he gave us life. Right? God gave people life. Look at verses 5 through 7. Who's that? Someone's in with me. Uh, What are we looking at in chapter 2, you guys? We are getting a snapshot of primordial earth before people have been made. And what is the difference between the creation as experienced in Genesis chapter 2 and the creation we experience now? Well, first of all, we read uh, there's no bushes or small plants. That has to make things like gardening and landscaping very different. No bushes, no small plants. There's no rain coming down, we're told. But instead, a mist is coming up from the ground. The word can actually be translated streams. So streams or a mist are coming up out of the ground. No need for an umbrella. There's no rain yet at this point. But most importantly, there are no people that have been made. Man hasn't been made, it says, in order to work the ground. Now I want to take you back to the movies as we read these verses. And I want you to think about a scene you've seen in a movie where everything seems to be going so well. And everyone is so happy. And then all of a sudden the camera pans over to one little thing or one little image that is a part of that. And when you see that image, you know that something terrible is on the way. Right? Can you think of that? Within some movie you've seen, everything's happy, everything's delightful, and then all of a sudden the camera zooms in, and because of what you see at that point, you go, horror is on the way. That's a little bit the way I feel when I am reading these verses. Because as we're reading these verses, we recognize that bushes and small plants, they haven't been made yet, but we can't can't read that without thinking about the fact that in the next chapter, because of sin, they're going to produce thorns and thistles and make getting produce very difficult. There's no rain, water is coming up from the ground, and we can't read that without thinking about the fact that in a few chapters, God, through rains from the heavens and the bursting forth of the waters from the earth, is going to flood the entire planet because of the wickedness and the violence of humanity. We can't read about there being no man to work the field without recognizing that in the next chapter, because of sin, work is going to become hard, not the way that God designed it. And so even as we look at this beautiful and perfect picture of paradise in Genesis chapter 2, our minds are already working forward a little bit, aren't they? Already he's calling our attention forward to the thistles and the thorns and the hard work and the flooding that's going to take place. But in chapter 2, God's going to make a paradise. And he starts with the making of a person. Right? He makes man in verse 7. And what we see in the sentence where he makes man is a wonderful description that helps us understand where we fit in the created order. Are we gods? Right? Are we divine? Are we somehow uh, children of God in a way in which we are divine co-creators? The answer is no. What does verse 7 say? We're a pile of dust and dirt that he scooped up in order to make another creature that's it. We're not gods. We're not divine. We're not the maker. We're just a pile of dust and dirt that he swept up in order to make another living thing. But is that all it says in verse 7? No, he goes on to say, we're also the pile of dust and dirt that he swept up and into which he actually breathed his breath. Unlike any other animal that we read about in here, God himself, in a very intimate picture, breathes into the nostrils of the first man in order to give him the life of God. And we need both of these pictures, both the pictures of dust and dirt and the pictures of God's breath filling us with life as we go through our experience here on the earth. Because anytime I start to get too high and mighty, to think about myself too much, to get too self-focused, I need to remember I'm simply a pile of dirt and dust that God brought together to make another creature. And any time I start to feel too worthless about myself, I need to remember that I'm not just a pile of dirt and dust, I am the unique creation of God, the crowning point of all of his creation, made in his likeness and according to his image that he intimately breathed into in order to bring life because he loves us so much. And we need both of those images as we go through life. God has made us. And as we fast forward to the cross, it is a reminder of the goodness of the life that God has given us there. He gives physical life in Genesis chapter 2. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus took our sin, our punishment, and our death so that we could have what? Real life as a part of the family of God. And that is what we celebrate. We celebrate the physical life that he has given to us because it's better to exist than not to exist. But we celebrate the spiritual life that God has given to us to bring us into his family. And I want to give you a moment right now, right in the middle of the sermon, to just pause and praise God and give him thanks for the life that he's given you. Would you just take a moment? Give God thanks for His life that He has given to you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the same God who breathed His life into Adam, has sent His Spirit, which both in the Hebrew and the Greek is a word related to breath or wind. He has sent His breath into you. And you now have life as a part of the family of God. And we praise him and thank him for it. But that's not all that God has given us that we give thanks for. We see in Genesis chapter 2, we can also give him thanks for his great provision in our lives. Look at verses 8 through 14. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, And the fourth river is the Euphrates. There are a few names in that passage. Because there are a few names in that passage, and a couple of them are familiar, people have asked the question again and again, where was the Garden of Eden? Where was it? We're told here that there were four rivers, two of which still exist, and we know where they are. And because of those two rivers and where they are, people think, okay, it was in Mesopotamia, modern Iraq. Moses, as he writes this 1,500 years before Christ, says that the Garden and Eden were in the east, which would make sense from the Sinai Peninsula where he's writing this, that it would be to the east in Mesopotamia. And so perhaps it is somewhere in there. But friends, uh, let me encourage us not to spend a whole lot of time worrying about the exact location of the Garden of Eden. I can't think of any good that comes from finding the exact location. Instead, let us focus on the generosity of God as it is seen expressed here. He brings a man into being and where does he put him? In paradise. We're told that he is bringing forth all of these amazing trees that not only bring great fruit that he can live off of, but we're told they're beautiful as well. Rivers are running through the land. There are all of these precious stones and jewels that are mentioned here that are all a reminder to us that this is paradise that God has put him in. Why? Why why would God put the man in paradise? Because our God is a good and generous God. Our God is a good and generous God. I want to give you a moment Right now, again, in the middle of the message, to just think about his generosity and his goodness in your life. If you're anything like me, a hundred things will happen to you over the course of the day. Ninety-nine of them are expressions of God's generosity and goodness, and one of them is challenging. And what do I focus on? God calls us to intentionally focus on his provision and give thanks for it. And so, just spend a moment right now thinking of all the ways he's been good in your life. All the ways that he's been your great provider. If you need some help, read Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 that says that God has blessed his children with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Right? Not 90% of the spiritual blessings. God has blessed his children with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The passage goes on to talk about the fact that we have been made right before God with the righteousness of Jesus, that our sins have been forgiven and totally wiped away. It talks about the fact that God's spirit dwells within us and is changing and transforming who we are, that we'll live forever with God and all that is good In heaven one day. Uh, It's just an amazing list of spiritual blessings that God has given to us. And that is a tiny little bit of what Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 talks about. I'd encourage you to go there this afternoon. And just spend some time meditating on all of the rich spiritual blessings that God has given to us. And give thanks to Him. Because what does God give? He gives generous provision to His people. Generous provision. But that's not all He gives. He gives. We see in this passage that God gives us meaningful work. Verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What do we need to notice first? We need to notice that God has made us to work as a blessing. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is a blessing from God given to us within this perfect state. Work being hard, that's a result of the fall. Sometimes our work failing, that's a result of the fall. But God designed us to be a people who work in meaningful and rich ways. Anyone ever see the movie uh, Wall-E, old Disney movie? It wasn't a favorite of mine. It was a little slow moving in some places and I have a really short attention span. But... Ultimately, the droid Wally winds up on this ship where people have created this utopia. And what does the utopia on the ship look like? Nobody ever does any work. Isn't that the picture of the utopia? They ride around on these hover chairs and they interact with screens and they don't, the robots do all of the work for them. And as you look at that utopia, how heavenly does that seem to you? It's actually kind of unattractive, Right? It's kind of disgusting. The people ride around and they look like giant puffy babies. Everything is atrophied on them because they do absolutely no work whatsoever. And as we look at it, we go, oh, that's not utopia. That, that's not paradise. As a matter of fact, in the movie, the people need to be saved from their non-working utopia, right? Because everyone recognizes, oh, that's not good. Because our God has made us to be a working people. Now, we'll see next week that work got broken a little bit during sin, that there are times where it's hard and exhausting, not God's original design. There are times where we fail in our work, not God's original design. But it is God's original design that we would work and experience all of the fruits that come with labor. That's His design for us as people. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, right? We're coming back to the cross in each and every one of these scenarios. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, our work can be meaningful and eternally significant today. Right? Through the cross of Jesus, Colossians three twenty-three and 24 says, "...whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." Because of what Jesus did on the cross and our salvation, we have an opportunity for all of our work to be focused on Jesus and the kingdom. Whether we're talking about the jobs that we work or work that we're doing around our house, whatever it is, any work that we do has an opportunity to be focused on Jesus and the kingdom. Whether we're an IT professional or a nurse or a contractor or whatever we are, it doesn't matter. Our primary aim and focus in our work is to bring him glory. We have an opportunity to glorify God through our attitudes and our effort. Right? We have an opportunity to glorify God through our attitudes and our effort. And more than that, God has set aside our places of work as our primary mission fields in life. That, that he has called us to make disciples. And the place where we spend 6, 8, 10, 12 hours, whatever it is that you're there. like God has called us to be his light in that place. And to be those who share his good news in that place. And because of that, our work can have eternal meaning. No matter how much we dislike our job, no matter how horrible a boss we have here on earth, our work can still be fulfilling and eternally meaningful if our perspective is that we are working for Jesus and his kingdom. So is that your perspective at work? Is that the way you you see your work? Uh, Not as some days that i got to get through to get to the weekend. Not as my means to a paycheck so I can pay the bills. No, primarily as your mission. A place to express the glory of God to those around you. Through your attitude, your actions, and your sharing of the name of Jesus. God gives us meaningful work and we see it here in the garden. And it is restored in meaning through the cross of Jesus Christ. Fourth, what does God give? God gives warnings. Okay, this one doesn't land in quite the same way as the others. But he does. For our good, God gives warnings. Verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There are two trees named in the garden. One is the tree of life. It represents all that God has for people. It represents life with God. And if we eat of that tree, there is life in that. As a matter of fact, as we'll see next week, life forever is found in the tree of life. And we see the tree of life planted again in Revelation chapter 22 as people experience the intimacy we were created for with our Maker. But in order to get to the tree of life, which Adam and Eve are told they can eat from, every tree in the garden you can eat from, in order to get to the tree of life, they have to go past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gives them a warning about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to try and take God's job away from him. God is the one who knows and determines what is right and wrong. All Adam and Eve need is to do what God has laid out for them. But if they reach for that fruit, what they are declaring is, God, that's nice that you've directed our steps. But we want to know for ourselves and determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. We want to be self-determining in this. And not simply follow along with you. We want your job, God. We want to be the determiners of right and wrong. And if they reach for that in pride and disobedience, God says, there'll be death. Physical, spiritual, and eternal death that come about because of that. And so God gives them a warning. Hey, don't eat of that. As we fast forward to the cross of Christ, God gives all kinds of warnings around the cross of Christ, doesn't he? He he is constantly giving warnings about the need to place our faith in Jesus, about the needs about our need to have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ or else. It's in our favorite verse, right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is this amazing promise of everlasting life if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also this warning, right? If we don't, what happens? We perish. 20 verses later in John 3.36, we're told that if we don't place our faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains on us. And so God is constantly giving us these warnings. Why? Because he loves his creation. He doesn't desire that we should perish. But he desires that we would repent and place our trust in him. And so he gives us warnings along the way. He gave Adam a warning and he gives us warnings Turn to me in faith. Seek after me. Be obedient to what I have called you to. God gives us warnings because he loves us so deeply. The final thing that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2 today is that God gives relationships. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, if you've ever read through the book of Genesis or if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 2, at this point, you might be saying, oh, We have arrived at the marriage section of Genesis chapter 2. Wonderful. Verses 18 through 25 is God's establishment of the covenant of marriage. Let's talk about marriage. And what I want to tell you is that we are going to talk about marriage next week. We're going to take these last few verses of chapter 2 and talk about them in the context of marriage as we go through some things in Genesis chapter 3 next week. But today... I really want to just focus in on God's desire for us within all human relationships. In verse 18, he says, It is not good that man should be alone. And that is meant to be startling to us as we read through this. What did we see in Genesis chapter 1? After every day, it is good. It's good. God is declaring, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. And then we get to verse 18 of chapter 2 and we hear, It's not good. Wait, what? It's good, it's good, it's good. Not good. It's meant to be jarring to us as we read this. And what is it that's not good? It's not good that man should be alone. Wait a minute. Is man alone? Isn't man in perfect relationship with God at this point? Totally unhindered by sin? isn't that enough to be in perfect relationship with God totally unhindered by sin, perfect communion with God? No. Right? As hard as it is for us maybe to say that, the answer is no according to Genesis 2:18. God hasn't just made us to be a part of vertical relationships. He's made us also for horizontal relationships. And so what we see here is that it is not good because the relationship that Adam has with God doesn't mirror the relationship that God has within the Trinity. In Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us, right, let us make mankind in our image. God has perfect loving relationship within himself. I know we've covered this before, but let me go back to it. Within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is able throughout all of eternity past, before he made anything else that he could love, he was able throughout all of eternity past to perfectly express love within himself, within the Trinity, so that forever into the past, the Father is able to perfectly love the Son, and the Son is able to receive that love, and the Holy Spirit is able to observe that love between the two people he loves most. Love fully expressed, given, received, and observed. Sometimes we don't pay attention to that idea of observing love and how much joy there is in that. And and as much as I love it when my wife shows love to me, as much as I love it when I get an opportunity to show love to her, some of the greatest moments in my life are when my kids have showed love to my wife well. When my wife shows love to my parents well. I get to see those that I love deeply love each other well and in that observation there is great joy. And God is able to fully experience all that love is within the Trinity as He gives, receives, and observes love. As the Spirit gives love to the Father, the Father receives that love, and the Son has an opportunity to experience the joy of observing that love. The problem in Genesis chapter 2.18 is this expression of relationship doesn't exist. In Genesis 2.18, there is God and there is Adam. And it does not match the Trinitarian pattern. Right? The, the, the three-part relationship that God designed us for when He says, "Let us make mankind in our image." And so what's the solution? The solution is Eve. Right? She's the relationship solution, because now Adam and Eve are able to operate within this three-part relationship in the same way that the Trinity operates. So that God expresses love for Eve, and Eve receives that love, and Adam has the intense delight of watching God express love for Eve. Eve expresses love for Adam, and Adam receives that love, and God loves to watch his children love each other well. And so this three-part loving relationship that is bound up in the Trinity is now able to be expressed within humanity. And it is God's design for our relationships within the body of Christ. Not just Adam and Eve. Not just within marriage, although we'll get to that next week. But in every relationship. God brings us into relationship with God so that now we can have these three-part relationships with each other. Where I love you. And you receive that love. And God delights in watching his children love each other well. And you love God and worship him. And God receives that love and worship. And I have the great delight of watching you express that love. And, and so now we are able to, through the work of Jesus Christ bringing us into relationship with God, fully express relationship the way that God designed it when He said, Let us make mankind in our image. This is only possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings us into the family of God so that we can experience these kinds of three-part relationships that we were designed for. And as we do so, His Spirit fills us with fruit that help us live out those relationships. If you think through the fruit of God's Spirit, most of them can only be expressed in relationship. Things like love and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness, these only can be expressed in relationship. And so God says, I'm going to send my spirit and he's going to change you and change the way that relationship works among you. He says, "You, you know how you're going to be able to tell my people? You're going to be able to tell my people by the way that they what? Love one another. Isn't that what he says in John 13? This is how all people know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. He says the way that people are going to be able to tell that the Father sent the Son in John 17 is the unity that you have as a people. And so God has made his people for love and unity and gentleness and patience and care. He has made us to be that body together. And if we don't see that love and unity, that's because the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't active and taken root there because wherever Christ goes, love and unity follow among people. Wherever Christ goes, love and unity follow among his people. This is possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. He has not only died so that we can have relationship with God, he has died so that we can have proper relationship with each other. We can enter into the body of Christ and love each other well and love each other rightly. I I love that Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone has come to us on Life Group Sunday. Uh, Because our life groups are a primary expression for us of how we come together in order to care for each other, pray for each other, love each other well. As I look out, I see members of my life group that are here today who love and care and encourage me. Hopefully I do the same thing for them. And so, friends, if you don't have that in your life, again, I want to encourage you to visit that table out there. We'd love to connect you with a life group so that you need not wander through this alone, but with people who love you and want to strengthen and encourage you. These kinds of new relationships that God makes for us are only possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. They're only possible because of... His redeeming work, making us right with God so that we can be right with each other. And and as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper today, I want to invite you to think about them relationally. To think about what God has done in the sending of his son Jesus so that we can have right relationship with him. But also, what he has done, the sacrifice that he has made so that we can have right relationship of love and unity with each other. We're going to spend a moment just contemplating and thinking about Christ and what he has done. When your heart is ready, I'd encourage you to go up to the tables. There's two in the front and two in the back that you can go to. There'll be a couple of songs that we sing before we take the elements together. But bring the elements back and we'll take those together. If you can't get up to get to the elements, uh, Kyle is back here with a tray, and if you just wave your hand, he'd love to bring those elements to you. Let's spend some time continuing to worship God as we prepare to take this supper together in remembrance of him.